Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome. My name is George Davis. Thanks for being a part of our services today. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Thank you very much. The first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. And as you turn there, I want you to uh, kind of take this statement and fill in the blank for me. Just do it in your own head, okay? So here's the statement I want you to fill in the blank for. Jesus is my blank. Jesus is my blank. Just think about that for a moment. Maybe you put multiple terms in the blank. My guess is for for many of us, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, perhaps the first terms that come to mind when we think Jesus is my blank, perhaps we think Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Perhaps you put other things in the blank, like Jesus is my Messiah, Jesus is my King, or maybe you just, maybe you would say, I'm not really sure what I think of Jesus, because you just put a question mark there. I'm sure in, in our group there would have been a diversity of ways in which we fill in the blank, but I would also surmise it's highly unlikely that you put this term in the blank. Jesus is my philosopher. This morning, we're continuing our journey through the life of Jesus Christ. If you're new, we're in this series called Love This Book. It's actually Love This Book Part 3. Over the last two years, we've taken time to work our way through the Old Testament, and now we're going through the Gospels, the story of Jesus. And as we've gone through the story of Jesus, we've seen, among other things, we've seen John the Baptist announce the coming of Jesus as the one who brings about this new thing that God is doing, the kingdom of God. We see Jesus come onto the scene in a public way and perform a miracle in the city of Cana, which was a sign of the things that he's doing. We've seen him relocate his ministry, his activity to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and there he's, he's casting out demons, he's healing the sick, and, and he's moving around and, and communicating in such a way that he's even agitating religious leaders because of the claims that he is making about himself. But as Jesus is moving through these different villages and these different crowds, he's also teaching. And this morning, um, we're coming to one of the most famous sections of his teaching, the section known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now remember, the central message of Jesus' teaching was this. It's the, the arrival of God's kingdom. And, and here's how I think we need to understand this sermon. Even as Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom, and in Jesus is, is revealing signs that show he is bringing about the kingdom, what the Sermon on the Mount does is this. The Sermon on the Mount describes life in the kingdom. And what Jesus is doing in this famous sermon is really giving us a philosophy of life. He is saying, this, this is what your life can look like. This is what life is intended to look like. Now, I've shown you this picture before, but I want to show it to you again. Uh, this simple stick figure on the screen 
is arguably the oldest known depiction of Jesus Christ in art. It comes from a little place called Duro Europus in Syria. And it was sketched on the wall of a home. It is believed that this was an early Christian house church. Sometime uh, this drawing dates sometime as early as the second century, maybe the third century A.D. And what you're seeing here, although it may be hard to understand, what you're seeing here is you're seeing Jesus perform a miracle. But what is fascinating is the clothes he is wearing are the robes of an ancient philosopher. And and what this drawing reminds us is this, from the earliest days of Christianity, people realized that Christianity wasn't simply a set of doctrines, as important as doctrine is. And it wasn't simply something we did when we gathered with others on Sundays. Christianity was a way of life. And that is what is being described as we look at this text this morning. Along these lines, let me, let me just mention a helpful resource. If you kind of like to go further in thinking about Christianity as a philosophy, it's a book called Jesus the Great Philosopher by Jonathan Pennington, who teaches at a seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It's really a helpful resource. And, and really to introduce you to part of what he's saying, I, I did a Zoom call with Jonathan a few days ago that was recorded, and we'll be posting that this week. It's about 15 minutes, so it kind of gives you just a taste of, of, of how to think about Jesus as a philosopher and what his philosophy is about. So if, if, you, find the, uh, if you find the interview helpful, you can, you can check out the book as well. But I would encourage you to take a few minutes to listen to that this week once we make it available. So as we now come to this sermon, uh, let me ask you this. What's your philosophy of life? Now, I realize that in asking you that question, you may say, well, George, I'm not a philosopher. We think, of, right, we think about philosophy as a very esoteric subject, and, and, you know, I can't even understand philosophers, and I get that. You're, we're not necessarily formally trained in philosophy, but, but even if we're not formally trained, everybody's got a philosophy of life. And by that, I mean this. At the core of who you are, you have some idea about how you think life should work. You have some idea about what it, what it means to live well. At the core of who you are, you've got some assumption about if this happens, then my life is going to go well, whatever this is. If I get the next step in my job, if my family relationships are good, if my health is good, if my financial security is in place, we have, we have different things that we put into the box of this is what it looks like for life to go well. So what's, what's your philosophy of life? Just think about that for a second because here's what I want us to do. I want you to think about, just acknowledge your philosophy of life. Here's, you know, here's what I think about life and how I want life to go. And, and we're going to... We're going to keep that in mind, but then let's, let's listen to Jesus, and let's see if the two are related or not, okay? So with that in mind, let's now come to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and as the sermon begins, we, we, we hit this famous section known as the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes all begin with this word, bless. Let me just read the opening, uh, let me just read the opening section of the Beatitudes to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, we need to pause a moment just to think about this term because it's not a term we necessarily use in everyday conversation. 
I realize it's a term maybe we hear more in Christian circles and in Christian relationships, but it may still strike us as a somewhat unusual term. So, so what does this mean? Well, in understanding the meaning of this term, I think it's helpful to know this. In the original languages of the Bible, right, Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek, in the original languages of the Bible, there are two groups of words that are typically translated blessed in English. Two different groups of words. One of the groups of words really focuses on the idea of divine favor. It's a word that can be used in certain places where where the author is highlighting God's favor, God's blessing on a particular person in a particular situation. So one set of words really focuses on the idea of divine favor. But another set of words kind of gets at this idea of blessing from a slightly different angle. And this group of words really focuses on the idea of human flourishing, of living well. And that's what we have in the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount. What we have is this um, word group used that really focuses on the idea of of, of flourishing. And, And I think what Jesus is doing, he's beginning to lay out his vision of what a life lived well looks like. To thrive, to flourish. And what this entire sermon is, this entire sermon, it's an explanation, an invitation to a new way of life. Now, as you look at this opening part of the sermon, I think it's important to see that Jesus' teaching is rooted deeply in the promises of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah. Now, when you come to the book of Isaiah, right, you come to this ancient prophet who who lived at a very difficult time in Israel's history when exile was looming, and and there's a lot of critique of his country in that book, a lot of expectation of judgment in that book. But even in the midst of that dark moment, Isaiah also, particularly the second part of Isaiah, is filled with hope. Hope one day God is going to send a deliverer. Hope one day God is going to bring about a, a plan of restoration and renewal. And so particularly you read the second part of Isaiah, you're going to come across certain chapters where this theme of hope resonates deeply as God anticipates sending his deliverer. One of the places you read that expectation is in Isaiah 61. And what is fascinating is there, there seem to be some clear parallels between Isaiah 61 and the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Let me just show you this chart. Right, so Isaiah talks about preaching good news to the poor, and Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Isaiah talks about binding up the brokenhearted and comforting those who mourn, and Jesus talks about, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Isaiah talks about inheriting the, the land, and Jesus talks about the meek inheriting the land. Isaiah says that they're going to be called oaks of righteousness, and Jesus talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, in a very subtle way, it appears that even as Jesus opens this sermon, that the, the way of life he is describing is deeply rooted in the promises of the Old Testament. And that becomes even more clear as you get to what is arguably the thesis paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, which comes a little later. It begins in verse 17. So, let me, let me just kind of walk you through this for a moment. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, as you can imagine, this whole idea of fulfilling them has generated a lot of controversy, a lot of debate. Now, when Jesus talks about the law of the prophets, he is, in essence, referring to all that we describe as the Old Testament. So he is saying, I've not come to abolish the Old Testament, I've come to fulfill it. But what does he mean by that? Well, among the various views, the one that I think makes the most sense is this. I think it's helpful to understand that the term Jesus uses here is the same term used in multiple places in Matthew 1 and 2 when Matthew describes the Christmas story as the fulfillment of of Old Testament prophecy. So the most, I think, most natural way to read Jesus' words here is this. What Jesus is saying is, all of the Old Testament points to me. Now that's a radical claim because he's not just talking about the Old Testament prophets. This is inclusive of all of the Old Testament. What Jesus is claiming is all of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, all of the Old Testament has, is moving in a particular direction. It, 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 it has a prophetic nature to it. All of it does. All of it is pointing towards me and the new thing that I am doing. And I think embedded in that claim is also the radical claim that this is incomplete without me. So Jesus is making this radical claim that kind of there's a direction, there's an anticipation woven into the Old Testament. And it is all pointing toward me and this new thing that I am doing. It is, it, it is all in some level promise that I am now fulfilling. That's the radical claim Jesus is making. And furthermore, he says, none of this is going to pass away. None of this is going to fade away until the promises, until the intention that is woven into these texts is fulfilled through me. So he continues, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, so far, so good, right? This is really exciting. All of this, all of this is leading up to me. And of course, I think the people on the hillside that were listening to this, they're thinking, oh, this is great. Look, all these Old Testament promises are being fulfilled through you. And Jesus, we've already seen the amazing things you can do, the, the healing, the ability to exercise demons. This is all, this is great. But then it gets really heavy. And then it gets really weighty. And don't, don't miss this. Let, let this text sink in for a moment, okay? Just, I want you to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. Because then he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly, certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I realize for most of us, I think particularly if you grew up in church, we think Pharisees and a lot of not negative connotations come to mind, right? I mean, that, that's, that is a term for us that has a lot of negative associations. But understand, for the people in the crowd, for the people on the hillside hearing this message of Jesus, understand that really in popular culture, the Pharisees were deeply appreciated. 
Now, a lot of people didn't want to live like they did, but, but they were deeply respected. And I know we can make fun of all the laws and regulations, but, but just understand what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were just trying to live out faith in everyday situations and figure out what that looked like. So culturally, there was a lot of positive affirmation of the Pharisees. And now Jesus says, by the way, as I'm introducing you to life in this kingdom that I'm bringing about, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees. It needs to be greater than the Pharisees. How's that possible? Does, does, that mean, does that mean I need to try harder and do more? The reality is I think some of, some of you have been in Christian circles, maybe even churches, where that was the vibe you got, right? <laughs> Your righteousness needs to surpass. You've got to measure up. Maybe, maybe you've been in those situations. And is that, is that what Jesus is getting at? That's, you know, that's just so demotivating. I was, uh, I was in the gym that I'm a member of a couple of weeks ago, and... Uh, one of the guys was working out, and he's, who works there, and I mean, this guy's really strong, and he was deadlifting, and there was just a lot of weight on that bar, and we've had conversation, we've talked before, so I went over to him as he was, you know, as he was getting ready to do another set of deadlifting, right, and I just looked at him, I go, I'm, how much weight is that, and he said, 405, and then he smiled and looked at me and said, this is light. And I kid you not, the next set, he put more weight on the bar. And I just looked at him. <laughs> just, just, just go, right? Get out of my face. No, I didn't say that, because I'm not going to say that to a guy that strong. Um, <laughs> I may not be strong, but I'm not stupid, okay? Right? No, he's a great guy, really. But, but you know, there, there was something really demotivating about that for me, because it's kind of like, if this is the standard, I might as well give up the membership. I'm never going to measure up to this. And I think we need to let Jesus' words sink in here. Okay, so Jesus, what do you mean when you say my righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees? Well, let's see if we can understand what Jesus is getting at. As we begin to unpack this, I think it's important to understand that I think by righteousness... Jesus is talking about a way of life that aligns with God's will, God's kingdom. But how do you do this better? How do you do this better than the Pharisees? Um, Well, to understand that, I think it's helpful then to look at chapter 6. Because if you go to chapter 6, what you discover is Jesus talks about several standard Jewish religious practices. Practices that were very common to faithful Jews of the first century. Giving alms to the poor... You know, right, helping the needy, prayer, and fasting. And in each of these descriptions of these religious practices, you will notice Jesus always also criticizes the hypocrites. And I think in criticizing the hypocrites, among others, Jesus, Jesus has in mind the religious leaders. But here's what you have to pay attention to in those accounts as you read Matthew chapter 6. 
Typically, when you and I, we think about hypocrites, particularly religious hypocrites, here's what we think, right? A hypocrite is someone who does, who says one thing and does another, right? A hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is talking about religious hypocrisy, the truth is, these people are doing all of these things. He never says, they claim they pray, but they don't. They claim to give alms to the poor, but they don't. They claim to fast, but they don't. No, what he says is, when you pray, don't pray like they do. When you give alms, don't give like they do. When you fast, don't fast like they do. And, and it's clear in these examples that what he is saying, they simply do it externally for the benefit of others to see. And so here's what becomes clear when Jesus is talking about hypocrisy in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't talking about saying one thing and doing another. Jesus is talking about doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Jesus is talking about an inconsistency between external behavior and the internal orientation of your heart and life. And so when Jesus says, I'm inviting you to a life of greater righteousness, (laughs) you might call this Jesus' righteousness, what he is inviting us to is a life of wholeness. What he is inviting us to is a life of integrity. And I think what becomes clear here is that central to the ministry of Jesus, central to the message of the kingdom of God, is the fact that God is now restoring people from the inside out. And this shouldn't surprise us, because if we go back to those deep promises in the Old Testament, we discover that part of the expectation of what God would do is exactly that, right? One day he's going to give you a new heart. One day he's going to write his law in your hearts. In other words, one day God is going to work in a new way that brings about wholeness. And I think this idea of wholeness reflects the biblical concept of of shalom. Things being made whole, things working together. When you think about sin, one of the ways to think about sin is this. Sin brings separation, right? Sin brings a tearing apart of our relationship with God. Sin brings a tearing apart of our relationships with others. I think sin can even separate us from ourselves because due to sin, we can lie to our sin. But what Jesus is doing, he's, he's now bringing a, about a plan of restoration and renewal. A plan that brings wholeness. A restoring of our relationship with God. A restoring of relationships with others. A restoring of who we are. That's the way of life that Jesus is describing in this sermon. That's what he's inviting us into. For instance, right in the middle, right in the middle of the sermon, right, you get this famous statement, be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. And again, I know that can feel heavy, but you can really translate it this way, be whole, be complete. And see, that, that theme of restoration and wholeness is central to the message of Jesus in this sermon. And what the rest of the sermon really describes is what this way of life looks like. Wholeness in relating to God, right? 
Here's how you can engage God in prayer. Wholeness in terms of ourselves. Jesus says, look, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but but I've come to deal with your anger. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I've come to deal with your lust. I'm, I'm coming to bring about wholeness from the inside out. I'm coming to introduce you to a life of true integrity, a consistency of life between who you are internally and your behavior externally. He also talks about wholeness and relating to others. He talks about engaging conflict appropriately. He talks about pitfalls to avoid in relationships. He talks about living our lives as part of his mission. And you see throughout, throughout this passage, what, what he's doing is he's showing us what this wholeness looks like. What this greater righteousness looks like. What this Jesus righteousness looks like. Now, I realize that at this point you might be saying, okay, George, I, I get it. Okay, so Jesus is talking about wholeness. This is, this is central to his philosophy of life. This is central to what he's doing through his work. But, but George, this still feels really heavy, right? This feels, it feels weighty. Because, George, when I look at my life, there are a lot of times I don't feel that whole, right? I see the inconsistencies between my thoughts and my behavior. Right, aren't there times where you said to yourself, if people knew what I was really thinking in this situation? Maybe you would say, you know, at times, George, there's strain and, and hardship in some of my relationships. Maybe that's the case now, and I know that I'm part of the problem. It doesn't feel very whole. I know certain situations I don't handle well. And so maybe you would say, even when when we talk about Jesus' ministry bringing about wholeness, it still feels weighty. If that's the case, let let me just remind you that ultimately the righteousness that Jesus is describing here is is the righteousness rooted in his work. It's rooted and empowered by our relationship with him. Even, even if you go back to those Old Testament promises like Isaiah 61, Isaiah says, you will be planted. You will be planted by God as, as oaks of righteousness. Right? It's God's work. And also, if this feels weighty, let me, let me just remind you how the Sermon on the Mount begins. Because I think the opening part of the Beatitudes really present a posture that leads us into this way of life. So notice, notice again how the, how the sermon opens. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those of you who realize you don't have it all together. Blessed are those of you who don't simply get comfortable with inconsistencies. Blessed are those of you who choose not to live life behind a facade that always says, 
I've got control of it. And Jesus talks about the poor and the poor in spirit. He's using language that, again, is deeply rooted in Old Testament imagery. And if we had time, we could work through some of that imagery. And in the Old Testament, this type of language could, in some cases, be used in reference to those who were economically destitute. And it came to describe people who recognized that they're not supposed to do life on their own. They're to engage life with an awareness of who God is and a dependence on him. So in orienting us to this way of life, this is how Jesus begins blessed, right? Thriving are you when, when you orient your life this way to a realization you don't have it all together. You don't, you don't, you're not intended to do this on your own. You're, you're intended to do this in the context of a relationship with God and to, to be dependent on him all along the way. And I think with that awareness comes freedom. Freedom that says, I don't have to do this all on my own. I don't have to have it all figured out. A freedom that helps me embrace my own limits. So blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's where the flourishing begins by orienting your life to this relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus continues, blessed are those who mourn. As we are oriented to God, we are aware that life doesn't go according to plan. We are aware of the brokenness of our culture. We are aware of our own brokenness. And we mourn. We don't simply become cynical and critical about everything and everyone around us. We don't simply close ourselves off and protect ourselves so that we can't be hurt anymore. We mourn. We pray for God's justice. We ask him to be at work. We seek to be an encouragement in the lives of others. We acknowledge when we are in the wrong and mess up. And we do this even now with an awareness that God's plan is still underway. Blessed are those who are meek. And I realize that that can seem a very passive term, but I think it's blessed are those who don't simply seek revenge in hard situations. Blessed are those who don't simply blow up when life goes according to plan. Rather, blessed are those who are teachable. And if at this point all of this seems very passive and kind of, you know, uh, non-active, we get to, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those in the midst of life's ups and downs, its victories and defeats are pursuing Christ and seeking to reflect his character and further his mission. So I think in many ways these These statements, they're orienting us to the life that Jesus is describing. (laughs) Just to make this a little more practical, just think about this even in the context of your responsibilities. For instance, think about maybe, think about your job, or if you're a parent, think think about parenting, right? 
Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, who embrace those particular responsibilities with a sense of dependence on God. Blessed are those who mourn. Right? Blessed are those who realize, you know, that the workplace isn't always going to go according to plan. It will include its disappointments. In my role as a parent, it won't always go according to plan. There are going to be mistakes along the way. But in the midst of that, I will seek to be for others. Blessed are the meek. In the midst of those hard job situations, in the midst of those heavy parenting moments, blessed are those who don't blow up, but are teachable. (laughs) Blessed are those parents who learn how to engage new seasons of parenting with new skills and new approaches. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the midst of the busyness of your job, in the midst of the busyness and weightiness at times of being a parent, blessed are those who don't lose the desire to reflect the image of Christ and seek to be a part of what he is doing. A few moments ago, I asked you to think about your own philosophy of life. Right? My life will go well if. I will thrive if. And even as you think about that, now make sure you're listening to the words of Christ. Jesus offers a different way of life. He's inviting you to a different way of life. And in a real sense, his invitation is, is an invitation to happiness. It is an invitation to flourishing that is rooted in wholeness rooted in the wholeness that only he can bring. So are you open to that? Are you open to his philosophy of life shaping who you are? Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we encounter this famous sermon of Jesus, we are struck by this theme of wholeness, of restoration. And we're struck by the the radical claim of Jesus that the, the journey of thriving and flourishing is this journey in which your restorative work is in place. And Father, I pray even now that maybe if there are ways that Jesus' philosophy of life needs to to confront our own philosophy of life. I pray we'd be open to that. I pray we'd be open to the the orientation toward life that is evident even in the opening part of the Beatitudes. But I pray we would also be open to that because we realize you are inviting us to thrive. You're inviting us to live well. You are inviting us to flourish. So may we hear these words with that in mind. And I pray this in the name of the one who makes it possible, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us. And at this time, I'm going to invite members of our prayer team to the front. And if we can pray with you, maybe even pray with you about what this this philosophy of life might look like for you, we'd love to have the privilege of doing that. So now as you go, be challenged by Jesus' philosophy of life. 
a challenge where he's inviting you to flourish. But it's an invitation to flourishing, rooting, rooted in the wholeness that only he can give. Amen.